reading today from Luke chapter 3, verse 15 to 17, and 21 to 22. The people were waiting expectantly, and all were wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winning fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And moving down to 21. When all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too, and as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Hear what God is saying to the church. G'day. <laughs> Always a good start with a laugh, eh? Gosh, it's crowded up here. Let's just do some furniture rearranging. There you go, mate. Take your toys with you. <laughs> Father, you're a good and gracious God. Your word is truth. Your word is life. Your word is light. There's a lamp into our feet by which we see the road ahead one step at a time as you guide our steps according to the counsel of your will for your glory according to your purposes which are always for our good that we'd be conformed to the image of your son Jesus and so this morning, Father, we gather here to hear what you would say to us from your word. We gather to hear what you would say to us, Father, as your people in this place. We gather to hear what you would say to us who are seeking and searching for the truth of who you are and who we are. And what is the point and the meaning for this thing we call life? Father, speak to us. Our hearts are hungry. Our hearts are thirsty. We pant after you as one who is thirsting after truth. Father, we thank you that you are the one who is with us. The Lord Jesus is Emmanuel, the God who is with us. We thank you that you are with us this morning by your Holy Spirit. And that you reign in this place as we bend our knees to you, that you might reign over our hearts. Have your way in us again this morning, Father. Have your way in us 
and for us and through us for your glory and for our good in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've had the reading from uh, Luke chapter 3 and uh, we've heard that it is Epiphany. And one of the other things that is associated with Epiphany is the baptism of Jesus. And so we're going to look at that this morning. We're going to investigate something of the baptism of Jesus. But I, I want to, to before, as part of my preamble, if you like, before we get to the, that part, I want to tell you a little bit of something about what we believe and what the scripture is. Because in the prayer, I mentioned that we are seeking truth and we all need truth in order to live. We need truth in order to live in this life. We need to know the truth about who we are. And we need to know the truth about who God is. If there is a God, then we need to know that. Because that changes everything, right? If God exists, and this Jesus character is in fact the God that he claims to be, then that changes everything. There's no coming back from that. You can't ignore it. It changes everything. If that's true, then it gives a context to who we are as human beings collectively and the purpose for our existence, but it gives a, a context to who we are as individuals and the purpose for our very lives. So this idea that God exists and Jesus is who he says he is, if this is true, it's of infinite value and inestimable worth. And, but this word truth is a word that has been so undervalued and eroded in our culture because the culture tells us that we have our own truth. You have your personal truth. I have my personal truth. And we all get to live our own truth. You do you. I'll do me. And so we don't have this concept in our culture anymore of an overarching truth that applies to everybody to which we are all accountable, whether you agree to it or not. Thank you, brother. This word that I am using here, truth, is not a contentless word. It means a truth that is true, and regardless of whether you believe it to be true, it applies to you and you're accountable to it, regardless of what you happen to think. It, it's a word that means an actually existing state of affairs. And so when I say truth, when I talk about the Christian faith as being true, I'm not saying it's my personal truth that gives my life meaning. I'm saying it is the truth to which we are all accountable whether you like it or not. And so we've got to understand that because the word has lost its meaning and value in our culture. The events that I'm going to talk about this morning with regards to the life of Jesus happened in real space-time history. It's not a myth that we happen to believe that makes us feel good. It's not a myth. It's not a legend. It's not the stuff of fairy tales, the once upon a time kind of a story. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about real space-time history, real events, real people, real facts, corroboratable. You can go back, you can search, you can research, you can check the historical record and see what the truth of the matter is. 
And the scripture puts itself forward like that. And this chapter is a very good example of it because right at the beginning of of Luke chapter 3, we are told this, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Etria and Traconitus, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. See how absolutely specific and to what lengths the gospel writers go to anchor these events in real history. There is a list of people who were significant and had significant roles within the culture that you can go back and check on. Back in the 90s, uh, the uh, ossuary of Caiaphas was discovered. And an ossuary is, is, is an ornate uh, box that kept the bones of, of the dead person. And it was marked with the name of Caiaphas, and it was ornate and rich. His bones have been found. We're talking about real people. And that makes all the difference. Because what it means is we don't get to shape it to suit us. We don't get to mold it and conform it to our image. It is God who molds and conforms us to his his image. And that's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means. That's what it means. It means to surrender ourselves to the life that has been given to us in Christ, to be conformed to his image in accordance with reality as it actually is, and the king over all reality, his name is Jesus. And so, we have John the Baptist out there in the wilderness, baptizing. What is baptism about? What's the point of baptism? Well, there are a number of really important things that baptism is about. And of course, the place in which John baptizes is also significant in the Jordan River. The Jordan, if you recall, in the history of Israel is the place where the the people of God moved out of the wilderness wandering period of their lives and into the promised land under Joshua. It's a transitional place moving from the old to the new where the gathered people of God are brought into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. This is where John is baptizing. Baptism has a number of significant implications in the culture at the time. So, for example, if you wanted to sit under the teachings of a rabbi, he would baptize you. So you are committing yourself to the rabbi and to his teachings and his way. So there is that kind of baptism. There is a baptism of purification that the priests would undergo as they were going into the temple. They would be baptized, cleansed, before going to serve God. And if a Gentile was to become a Jew, they would make a profession, they would undergo circumcision, and they would undergo baptism to be included into the people of God. And so here we have John, the one whose name is associated with this practice of baptism, the baptizer. 
at the Jordan River, the place where the gathered people of God moved from the old and into the new, into the promised land. Coming under this new teaching, where is a cleansing that's taking place before serving God. But significantly, he's calling Israel to baptism. That's weird. That's odd. Gentiles to baptism, surely. No problem. They get baptized, become Jews. Jews, what, what, what need do Jews have of being baptized? So immediately, there's a, there's, a, there's a context that drives a question. Why? Why this baptism? And we're told here it's a baptism for the remission of sins, for the repentance and, and forgiveness of sins. Does that strike anyone else as odd? Under the old covenant, how is sin remitted? Sacrifice, where? Temple, John, wilderness, baptism, forgiveness. That's odd. John, this strange character, dressed in camel's hair, eating wild insects and honey and stuff. And people flocking to him to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. That's the job of the temple. What's he doing? A little bit more context. 400 years earlier, Malachi, end of Malachi. I'm just going to flick there because it's worth it. Should have marked it earlier. Malachi, the end of chapter 2 of Malachi, and rolling into chapter 3, says this, You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? Into verse, in chapter 3, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a, a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites, the priesthood. And refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who bring offerings and righteousness and offerings of Judah. And Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by and as in former years. And right skipping forward to the end of chapter 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses declares the, uh, decrees the laws I gave him at, at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send a prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. That's 400 years before John. And the voice of the Lord had gone strangely silent. 
and the prophetic word had ceased in Israel. That sounds alarmingly familiar. The prophetic word had ceased. And God had gone silent. 400 years later, John comes. We're told in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. Wearing the garb of the prophet. And he comes self-confessedly as the one who is charged with preparing the way of the Lord. And he does it in opposition to the temple. Because forgiveness of sins is wrought by sacrifice to the temple, but John is called of God into the wilderness to baptize for the forgiveness of sins, to prepare the way for the messenger who will come. Intriguing, isn't it? Isn't it interesting? You start to join these dots and see what the Lord is doing. Jesus himself says that there is none born of woman greater than John. And the Old Testament prophets and the law are until John. John closes out the Old Testament. And so we might cheekily ask, who is the greatest of the Old Testament prophets? John. But he's in the New Testament. Yeah, (laughs) he is. But he's the last because there's a transition from the Old to the New at the River Jordan. The place where the gathered people of God move from the Old into the New. Where there's a purification that takes place in preparation for the New entering into promised land and onto the scene marches Jesus he comes in and John here in this passage says the one who is coming is greater than I the one who is coming I'm not worthy to untie his sandals you know I baptize with water this guy the one who's coming he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire And Jesus submits to baptism by John. That's interesting. Why would he do that? Why why would Jesus, the one who is greater than John, submit himself to being baptized by John? That doesn't make any sense. Elsewhere we're told Jesus replies, suffer it to be so for now, to fulfill all righteousness. This is the way it needs to be, John. Trust me on this. It's got to be this way. So why is Jesus baptized by John then? Well, there's a few different reasons. It was the great American theologian, Jonathan Edwards, who said that uh, Jesus lives his life not as a private person. What he means by that is he doesn't live his life as an individual the way we do. He lived his entire life on our behalf. And so when Jesus obeys the law, he obeys the law on our behalf. 
Edwards cheekily asked the question, when did Jesus first shed his blood for us at his circumcision? He obeys the law on our behalf. He keeps the law on our behalf. He lives a perfect life on our behalf, in our place. He lives his life as the mediator of all humanity. The one who represents all of us. And so he lives his life in a way that is not a private way. He lives it in a corporate way for us. It's not that Jesus' life is an example to us, although it is. It's far more than that. He lives his life perfectly for us. And it is because he lives a perfect life on our behalf, in our place, that he is able to go to the cross in our place, you see. It's because of his meritorious life that he is able to die a satisfactory death. It's because of his perfect life that his sacrifice fits. It pays the price for all of us. And so when Jesus is baptized, he's baptized on behalf of the people of God, ushering in the new. But alongside that, here's one of the other ways that baptism was used in the Old Testament. When the high priest handed over the mantle to the new high priest, the outgoing high priest baptized the incoming high priest. So the outgoing high priest would baptize the incoming high priest, bestowing upon them the mantle of high priesthood and the authority that goes along with it. And so here we have John, who is called of God to go into the wilderness as finally the last prophet of the law and the prophets, the Old Testament. After 400 years of silence, John goes out into the wilderness to proclaim the coming of the one, the messenger we read about in Malachi. And he does this by baptizing for remission of sins in opposition to the temple. Why? Because the temple had become thoroughly corrupt. In the opening stanzas there of this this chapter, chapter 3, we're told that there are two high priests, Annas and Caiaphas. But hang on a second, there's only meant to be one. Why are there two? Why are there two high priests operating in the temple in contradiction to the word of God? There is only supposed to be one. Well, Caiaphas was a Roman appointee. He was appointed in 18 AD by Rome. It was a political position. And it was part or being used as part of the Roman Empire's oppression of Israel and keeping them in line with the dictates of Rome. Caiaphas is there to keep the peace 
hey, 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 don't, don't rock the boat here, folks. We've got a good thing going on. And you see him doing that again and again as you go through the scripture. Well, hey, well, if it's, you know, if it's fitting for one to die on behalf of everybody else, so there's not a whole lot of trouble for the rest of us. All right, so let's off this guy. He's a Roman appointee. The temple had become thoroughly corrupted and was no longer working in accordance with the word of God. God sends John into the wilderness. Now is the time. Go and baptize my people, preparing the way for the one who will come to cleanse and refine the Levites and the priesthood. How does he do that? By becoming the high priest. That's what Hebrews is about. He becomes the high priest over the people of God. And he becomes our great high priest because he doesn't offer the sacrifices of goats and lambs. He offers one sacrifice, one final sacrifice himself. Moving from priest, high priest, great high priest. And so Jesus accepts baptism from John making that transition from the old to the new baptized on behalf of the new people of God a newly constituted people that God is drawing together that includes both Jew and Gentile the dividing wall of hostility torn down in Christ he does it as an act of obedience committing himself to the father he does it on behalf of us, and he does it accepting the mantle of high priest. But this is all gathering together. It's not so that Jesus is alone, the private person, and that's the end of it. No, it's to gather together the people of God. If we turn to First Peter. In chapter 2, we read this. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by human beings, but chosen by God, precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe the stone is precious, but to the one who does not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We've talked about John's baptism. We've talked about Jesus' baptism. Now I want to talk about our baptism. Because in a sense we are baptized in Christ as, at his baptism. But we, when we come to believe, are baptized into Christ. You see, Jesus has become our great high priest, but he has made us all a nation of priests. 
and our role is to offer spiritual sacrifices. In Romans chapter 12, Paul puts it this way. He says, therefore, brethren, in light of the mercies of God, present yourself a living sacrifice. Holy, pleasing, acceptable for God. This is your reasonable act of worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will know God's perfect, pleasing will. As Jesus did, we are to offer our lives as a living sacrifice. Not a sacrifice unto death like a goat or a sheep or a bull or something like that, but a living sacrifice. What does that mean? It means our entire lives are to be lived as an act of worship before God. Our entire lives are to be lived as an act of worship before our God. In Romans chapter 6, Paul puts it another way. He says, for as many who were baptized have been baptized into Christ's death. So what does it mean then? It means that we're not conformed to the pattern of the world. We don't live as the rest of the world does. We're to live our lives in a new way, not pursuing the same ends or the same vision or the same goals as the world. And my friends, my concern is that us in the West, we the church in the West, have become so comfortable that we've begun to shape the word of God to fit our needs rather than to be shaped by the word of God for his purposes. But the call of God through all of scripture is that we are to live our lives under him. Our entire lives lived as an act of worship before our God. And that means that it it reorients the way that we look at life, the things that we value, the things that we pursue, the things that we hope for, the things that we dream for. It reorients all of that around the person of Jesus. Because the truth is that he is our promised land. We do not belong here to this world. Wherever he is, that is where our home is. And we forget that to our detriment. But my concern is that we have seen, we've let our eyes drop and we now see this is our home. And we want to make ourselves as comfortable as possible while we're here. But it doesn't work like that. to live all of life as an act of worship before our God. That means that there's no separation in any of your life. See, the world wants to compartmentalize our lives so that over here is your work life, over here is your church life, over here is your family life, over here is your recreational life, and over here is whatever thing you want to keep secret from everybody else you know you want them to see, right? We, let's call it a closet, just to be controversial. <laughs> So that's the way the world wants us to see our lives, compartmentalized, put into nice, neat little boxes. And over here, I can be a Christian, but I don't bring my Christianity into my workplace. And and over here in my recreational area where I play sport, that's where I'm playing sport. And I'm not a Christian there. I'm, I'm a sports person, an athlete. I'm hanging with the boys. 
And so my faith doesn't impact that because they're in nice, neat little compartments somewhere else. In our political lives, oh, no, you know, you can't bring your faith into the political sphere. No, you can't do that. No, 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 that's, that's for your private life behind closed doors. No, keep, keep, keep your faith out of politics. Don't, don't bring that over here. That's not the way that the Bible teaches what faith is. The Christian faith, if true, brings a unified truth to the totality of life. A unifying truth to the totality of life where every sphere of who you are and therefore what you do comes under the auspices of who God is and what he desires. All of life as an act of worship. And I think we've forgotten that. You know, Jesus here in this passage in Luke chapter 3 is a divider. He divides and he brings unity. Both of those things are true. He talks about him here dividing the wheat from the chaff. And the chaff he burns with fire because it's of no value. doesn't produce any fruit but the wheat he gathers into his barn if you are part of the people of God today you are part of the wheat that God has produced if you are part of the people of God today you are part of the wheat that God has produced the world is dividing us Everything that is happening in the world at the moment is a divide and conquer policy. Right? Everything that can be shaken is being shaken. We're not living in the world of last year, 2021, and we're not living in the world of 2020. Everything's changed. Right? Everything's changed. And if you're asking for my 10 cents worth, and I've got a microphone, so I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> as is my want um, but if you're asking for my opinion regardless of whether you are or not I'm going to give it to you I don't think it's going back I don't think we're going back to the way it was I don't think it's going to happen but if, if, that has, if that has unmoored you it's because you're taking your eyes off of the truth that it is God who brings together it is God who brings unity And if you're a part of the people of God today, you're a part of the wheat that God has gathered. And in a world divided, it is our unity that will speak most highly. Will shine most brightly in the coming days. Because the world is seeking to divide the powers that be, the, pre, the, 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 the program that's been unleashed upon us seeks to divide and conquer. But we, the people of God, must remain united. 
And it is our unity together in love that has come through and solely through the Holy Spirit of God in our midst, in our hearts, in our community. That is what is going to speak most loudly to the world. How come in this world of fear and anxiety and in division and in compromise, you people stay strong and united and together and loving and hopeful? They will look at us and go, how come you live the way you do? This is what it means to be baptized in Christ, that it means to be brought into the body of Christ, into unity. We are all part of one body. And we may have different roles to play in that body, but the ear cannot say to the eye that I have no need of you. And the hand can't say to the nose, I don't need you. No, we are part of the body. We all have our role to play and the body is stronger because of our inclusion in it. Our inclusion comes through Christ and Christ alone. And so we have nothing to fear in the days that lie ahead because our security and our certainty and our hope and our comforts and our vision And our goals and our dreams are not bound up with this world. They belong to a different world. Our citizenship is in heaven. And he has called us, his people, the church, to be a vanguard of the one who is coming to claim that which belongs to him. A frontier outpost in the wild west as ambassadors of Christ, proclaiming his goodness and his glory by our words, but also by our manner of lives. That we cannot and will be, we cannot and will not be divided and we cannot and will not be unmoored by fear and anxiety. John's baptism guaranteed a transition from the old to the new. Jesus' baptism included a whole new people into the people of God. A people who are purified by his perfect life and his sacrificial death. And we who are baptized are baptized into that death and united into the body of Christ so that we may enjoy the life that comes from God himself, the source of life. And no one can take that from us. Let's pray. You alone are God. There is no God besides you. There are many, Father, who would be called Lord and gods, and they are not. There are many who would seek to rule over us as if they were ultimate, and they are not. They are accountable to you. We are all accountable to you. And, Father, as we gather here today, we commit ourselves afresh and anew to you through your Son, by his blood and in the power of the spirit of God that indwells us. We declare again our unity with Christ and our unity together with each other. And we thank you for the perfect love that has been shown to us in Christ that casts out all fear. And we declare again that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to him and are saved. 
even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, whom shall I fear? Fear no evil, for your rod and your staff are with me. They comfort me. And so today again, Father, we put our faith and our trust in the promises that you have already made to us and the power and the resources that are already available to us through Christ by the power of your Spirit. And we commit ourselves to standing, not just individually, but standing together as your body, to embodying the life of Christ that is given to us by your Spirit, to living as a witness to the truth of who you are by our love for each other and our love for you. And there is nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so for us today, Father, we declare again that to live is Christ and to die is gain. So, Father, today we boldly proclaim these truths to be true. Not just a myth that gives us hope, but the truth of who you are and what you've done through your son Jesus and who you've made us to be as a result of that and how you are calling us to live in light of these things. And we do it, Father, not because of any goodness that resides in us or because we're so great or holy or learned or credentialed or because of our social standing or money or wealth or learning or anything else, but because of Christ and Christ alone who has qualified us to take part in these things. In and of ourselves and in our flesh, we have no resources to embody this or to become this or to live this way, but you have given us all that we need through Christ and by the power of your spirit. So we entrust ourselves to you, believing that as we take this step of faith, Father, we will find the provision that you've already made since before the foundation of the earth was laid. So have your way in us again today. Have your way for us again today. And have your way through us again today for your glory. And in Jesus' name, amen.